You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. We're looking at interactions that Jesus has had uh, with some people. And last week, if you remember, Michael talked about like our religious practices, our traditions, things like that. We, we can't rest on those. It is all about our relationship with Jesus personally. And that why I say that today is kind of part two of that is because um, today is all about, it's not about the good stuff that we do personally. It's truly just about our relationship and our interactions. So if you want to start with me, we're going to just read the passage right off the bat. We're going to get into it. We are in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. It's, you know, it's kind of a chunk there. Um, it'll be up here. You can follow along as you want to, or you can just sit and listen. Either way. But here we go. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good. Well, except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, I have... All these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then, classic, Peter spoke up. We've left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me And the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So we start out this passage with a man interacting with Jesus. And not just any man, but a man who, in a lot of ways, exudes potential, okay? In this story, this is cross-reference. It's in Mark. It's also in Matthew. So looking at both of them together from both of these accounts, we are told that this guy has great wealth or at least access to great resources, In Matthew, we are told that he is young. He's presumably at the beginning of his life with a lot of years in front of him. 
And a lot of your translations, I wonder even if in your Bible, like the little subheading says rich young ruler. Yeah, do some of you guys have that? So he has some sort of authority of some kind, maybe some sort of influence on others to be called a ruler. For all of these reasons, it seems like this guy has a lot of opportunities in front of him. He does not seem unlike, say, a college student at a prestigious university, thinking about the life that they have been building so far and up until this point in their lives, what they have done, and wanting some affirmation or maybe even some direction to go forward. Interestingly enough, we meet this young man as he is pursuing an encounter with Jesus. He is pretty desperately, he's running, he's falling, seeking out Jesus. And we don't know why. Maybe he is a young person who, I don't know, has had some moments recently where he has somehow realized that despite all of these things, there's something missing from his life. That he maybe feels unfulfilled by something that's supposed to be filling him up. Or maybe he's a young person who is feeling the weight of having so much opportunity. Like he's on this treadmill to keep going and keep going and keep being worthy of all the opportunities that he's been given. Or maybe he's a young person that just wants to be applauded. He's designed his life around a very specific way of performing well and of getting the right applause from the right people. And here's an opportunity from this guy to be affirmed and congratulated by someone respected, somebody in authority. Or maybe he's a young person who is hoping that this one more praise will finally fill up that leaky space that constantly needs one more affirmation, a little bit more respect, one more validation, one more assurance to say, you're good, you're fine. Regardless of his reasons, he recognizes something important about Jesus and is drawn to pursuing an encounter with him. All right, when I was in high school, I, <laughs> I kept a Microsoft Word document on my family desktop, because that's what you did at the time. You had a desktop that the whole family shared. Um, I wish I still had it, but it is lost on that said desktop, wherever that, whatever dumpster that is living in right now, still going. And there's no such thing as cloud storage. And if I did have a copy of it, it'd be on a floppy disk. So that's not helpful anyway. But um, I had this list, okay? And the lists are the, the, the file had a couple of lists in it, actually. One of, um, one of the lists was, was titled something like clubs and activities. And then the other list, I mean, I can still see it on the pages down here. And then the other list was something like, um, like titles. And then a third one was awards. And as I went through high school, I kept track of these lists, carefully adding a new bullet point under each heading when I joined something new, scholastic bowl, mathletes, tennis, yearbook, honor society, school improvement task force, so on and so on, for about 20 lines or so, all down the left side of the page. Or I'd add a new bullet point when I figured out um, a way to get a new title in that activity. Student council representative, French National Honor Society president, right? Who cares about that? Class secretary, editor-in-chief of the school paper, yada, yada, yada. Or when spring ceremonies came around and I'd get an award or an accolade. 
outstanding sophomore, junior, senior, the yearbook superlative Miss Ritchie's High School, that was the name of my high school, my 4.0 GPA, graduating salutatorian, and so on. Now, the paper certificates were fine, but the, one, the wooden ones with my name on the little golden plaque, those were a lot better. Those were a lot better. It was such a thrill like for me to add something to this resume of sorts. And I told myself that I was tracking all of this stuff in one nice convenient spot for when I did those college applications. It'd be so easy, right? Just, it's right there. Ugh, it's embarrassing how much I returned to that Word document, double-checking that everything was there, feeling a lacking feeling um, at, like, what else could I add? And being compelled to think about how to constantly keep adding to that, that little, like, blinking cursor, feeling like it was kind of mocking me, whatever I added, because there's always infinite space on a digital file to keep adding. I was just motivated, right? Ambitious, setting a good example. If I couldn't be loved by everybody just as much as I wanted, then I would darn well be respected and admired even by everybody because of what I accomplished. Again, just setting a good example. Yeah. So here in college, I could still control my GPA, something that wasn't all that hard to do in LAS. I will say. Still learning things. Oh, wait, did I say learning things? I mean doing exactly what I needed to do to get an A in my classes, and that's about it. Um, I didn't go the clubs and activities route, though, here at Illinois. I went the church route. I would achieve by getting involved here and pursuing opportunities here. Okay, I totally knew not to collect that physical resume of titles anymore, but I sure could collect a mental resume of being good, setting a good example, being respected and admired. This is how you get attention in church. Maybe just like I listed out for the young man in the passage, sometimes I would pursue Jesus because I had a moment where I realized that something was missing from my life. Sometimes I would pursue Jesus because of feeling the weight of so much opportunity and the guilt there of needing to perform well for the opportunities I'd been given. Sometimes I'd pursue Jesus because I just wanted to be applauded. I had designed a life around performing well, of getting the right applause from the right people, and looking to Jesus for an opportunity to be affirmed or congratulated even. Or maybe sometimes I also pursued Jesus, maybe just to get one more praise to fill that leaky, empty space that needs a little respect and praise and validation and assurance that I was good and that I'll be fine. Like the young man long ago in the Middle East, I understand coming to Jesus based off of my good works, my goodness. Even though I am separated by this man that I read about here, by a couple millennium and a vastly different culture, I can still be so focused on my one-paged resume 
of what I do that's good that I ignore and I'm blinded to my 5,000-page doctorate dissertation on how I fail and how I don't measure up and how sometimes I can be actively being, being good or doing good things that actually separate me from God, not get approval from him. But also, like this young man, I recognize something important about interacting with Jesus, and I'm drawn to pursuing an encounter with him. How about you? I'm sure, it, I'm sure, and when you're, you're in the midst of it, when you're in the midst of the assignments and, and the pressure to perform, that it doesn't feel like it, but at this age in your life and at this university, you have so much opportunity Unfortunately, it's largely based off how well you have previously performed. <laughs> you have all this opportunity, and you're also here, sitting in a lecture hall on a Sunday morning with a little church, and in some capacity, in some way, looking to encounter Jesus this morning. Now, whether this guy here in the Word was seeking like a secret key or just some validation, the young man intentionally pursues Jesus to find out what do I need to do to inherit eternal life. I kind of think he was hoping Jesus would be like, you did it. Good job. You're done. Take it easy. I don't know. I don't know what he was expecting. But Jesus knew. Knowing the man's heart and the man's misconception of how God defines good Jesus challenges him right away with the use of good teacher. When I first read this passage, it was surprising, Jesus' reaction, when he says, like, he kind of, like, rebukes him for calling him good. But seeing straight through to this man's heart, Jesus does not waste a moment in pointing out that the man's definition of what is good is flawed, it's warped. It was just a greeting, it's just a greeting. But Jesus brings truth that that man needs to see right away. It's startling, to say the least, and presumably threw him off, like his encounter with Jesus. It was not how he expected the conversation to go, even from the get-go. And then Jesus lists out some of the Ten Commandments, like the, the important laws that were handed down throughout the tradition in Judaism. The law, in fact, actually. Now, Jesus only throws out a few of the commandments, and in kind of like a haphazard order. Again, not what you would expect as a response to the question that he asked. So let's take a look at those um, Ten Commandments a little closer. Um, maybe you had a chance to connect in your small groups this week over um, how the commandments were, the, were given in the Old Testament, and maybe why Jesus is bringing this up now, because it's a pretty seemingly weird response. So in the original list of the Ten Commandments that were given in the Old Testament in Exodus 20, yep, there they go, um, God, how we got these is God has an interaction with Moses where God lists these commandments that his people must follow to be right with God. The list gets passed down through the centuries. They're kind of like on these big stone tablets. Those break. He does it again. They're kind of, everybody's a mess with it. But they get passed down in Judaism as an integral part of how you can be right with God. Righteous. These rules and other additional ones added through time by tradition and priests and so, and so forth are what the young man is using to justify himself as worthy of eternal life. The law. 
He believes his obedience to the law, to the rules, is what is making him good. And he has boasted to Jesus that he has kept all the rules since he was a boy. So here's the Ten Commandments. I want, as an easy reference up here, and I, I want you guys to do a little checklist with me, okay, as we read Jesus' response in Mark. So we're just going to kind of check off the ones that Jesus says. All right, so 19, Jesus says, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, got it, verse 13, check. You shall not commit adultery, 14, check. You shall not steal, got that one. You shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, which we're looking at you, verse 17, like the idea of taking what's not yours. Honor your father and mother. So what is left? We did the bottom six. There's still a lot of the Ten Commandments that are left. The first four, actually, he doesn't mention, which is interesting. But then when you take a look at what the first four are about, it's even more interesting. The first four commandments are all about God. Not just about God, but your relationship with God. About not having idols, right? Things that you worship and you put in God's place about disrespecting God's holiness, his otherness from us, about not taking the time to be in relationship with God, right? The Sabbath, resting in him, trusting him for provision and purpose instead of yourself. The six commandments that follow have to do with interpersonal acts. And unfortunately, they're acts that you can technically keep the law outwardly, but you don't necessarily... It doesn't necessarily point to a a deep or authentic relationship with God. These are the rules that the young man is using to justify himself. Why is this important? It shows from the beginning of the uh, the beginning of the Israelites' encounter as a nation with God to present day when they're with Jesus. We cannot do life for God without doing life with God. And I know, I want to say that again, because it's important. We cannot do life for God without doing life with God. And I think I can hear that and be like, yeah, totally. Yes, definitely, 100%. But I do this. Why does Jesus answer his question with with listing these half dozen commandments? Even in his answer, Jesus is showing the man his works-based self-righteousness that he thinks is earning him eternal life. He leaves out the, relation, the, the relationship with the Lord, and the young man doesn't even bat an eye. In fact, he doubles down that he's been perfect. He's wrong. He's so, so wrong. He's holding on to an identity and a hope that is in himself, and one that's like clearly not even true, not even in the subset of rules that he proclaims that he has kept personally. There's no way that he has. So twice already in their short interaction, Jesus has pointed out the man's flawed logic, and he doesn't quite catch it. Where Jesus has every right to rebuke this guy, to truth bomb him, to shame him, to just lay it all out, here is what it says next. Jesus looked at him, and loved him. Jesus shows his gentleness and his patience with this young man 
all through their interaction, but it is never more clear than in verse 21 when it says, he looked at him, which I have to mean that it means he looked him in the eye. He looked at him and he loved him. That is Jesus' response to this guy's pathetically untrue resume. Jesus sees through the man's questions, his veneer, and into his heart. His heart that is broken and seeking, that is chained in a way that the guy is not even aware of. Compassion and love and tenderness. This is Jesus. This is important. We can't roll past this quickly. I have to camp out here because this is everything. Because Jesus loves him, he challenges him. Because he loves him, he wants to rescue him and he wants to free him. That's the order. He loves him, then he challenges him and wants to rescue him and free him. God's plan for faith is his grace and not our works. And I know we say that in church all of the time. In fact, we kind of say it so much that I can be like, I don't, grace, what does that even mean? Here's a helpful handhold for grace. Grace is receiving something that you did not earn. Grace is receiving something that you did not earn. The, the, as is like a side, mercy then is not receiving something that you did earn. See the difference there? Grace is getting something that you didn't earn. Mercy is not receiving what you did earn. He says, Jesus says, only God is truly good. Jesus offers this young man an invitation to see his own sinfulness and his just inability to please him. Only Jesus has ever been and will ever be the only one who can keep all of God's commandments. And there's bad news, good news situation. The bad news is God does require perfection, which is impossible for humans to achieve. Bad news. The good news is Jesus' perfection covers us completely. Verse 27, with man, he's talking about salvation. With man, it's impossible. This is impossible. You can't do it. But with, God, or, but with God, all things are possible. God does not expect us. I hope if you're hearing this for the first time, I want you to hear it. And if you're hearing it for the thousandth time, I want you to hear it. God does not expect us to meet certain standards before we come to him. For salvation or just to say, hey, we can never be good enough, nice enough, woke enough, selfless enough, knowledgeable enough, sorry enough to earn God's favor. God is the only one that generates new life in a believer. God, good works are not a pass into God's presence, but they're evidence that God's already with us. After we receive Christ, the Holy Spirit gives us a desire and the ability empowers us to obey God. Our desires change, our appetites change, our thoughts are transformed to love what God loves and hates what he hates, namely sin. And here's the thing, God receives the glory, not us, for anything that we can do that would please him because he's the one empowering us to do it. 
It's not our plans. It's not our willpower that help us to obey God. And our obedience is not a test for us to get eternal life. This gives the context to the man's next super surprising response, or Jesus' super, super surprising response to the man. The man expects Jesus to congratulate him. We, or at least I, expect Jesus to tell him what's wrong, that he's wrong. But Jesus says something totally different that exposes his heart. Maybe if Jesus directly corrected him here, told him to pursue a relationship with God, that the man might just turn that into another workspace checklist. Talk to God. Check. Love God. Check. Be in relationship with God. Check, check, check. More performance. But Jesus responds to the man not with something else to do, but with something else to let go of. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. There is a physical and a real reality to giving away all your money and all your stuff. But more importantly, there is an identity shift in giving up these things that Jesus is pointing the man to. It's not about the stuff. It's about the man's hold on the stuff. In Jesus's time, and culture, and this is, this is important to understanding because we can, we can pull stuff for us today, but in his time and his culture, wealth is associated, similarly for us, to privilege and blessing, okay? We see it in the firstborn son in the family gets the inheritance. He gets the blessing. Like, it all goes in that one spot. So there is, there's privilege and blessing associated with wealth, even spiritually. Some rabbis commonly taught that wealth was a sign of like a good standing with God or a good relationship. You're doing good, so here are all the blessings that you have. You have God's favor. That is why, if you were like, wait, what? That is why it says the disciples were amazed when he said this, when he disassociates wealth and spiritual goodness. Jesus was not teaching that giving things away gets us to heaven. Let's really be clear on that. Or makes us good. He is unlinking that this man's stuff, the things that gave him his position in society, his position of his blessings, he's unlinking those from this man's spiritual health and eternal life. He was exposing that this man's identity was in his performance and in his position. And that that's what he was putting his faith in, not God. He's trying to help this man see his idol. Remember the Ten Commandments, right? Jesus already pointed out that the fact that this man has not kept all the rules. His performance has not been perfect. And now he's saying, give everything away which would help him lose his position or his privilege. So the man's performance and his privilege both don't get him into eternal life. The point of giving the stuff away saying here is not to create a new command for Christ followers on how to inherit eternal life. And yet, I do want to acknowledge, it's not something for us to just casually wipe away as specific to this guy either. Don't get lost in figuring out who is rich and who isn't for applying this passage. Rich is a constantly moving target. 
and a totally subjective category. Everyone has a different definition of rich. And interestingly, most people would probably not put themselves in this category. The point of the giving the stuff away is not to create a new rule, but to expose that we, him, then, us now, that we as humans commonly rely on things that are false to give us security and self-sufficiency. The stuff that we have, however much of it, has the power to bind us to this world rather than to eternity, especially when we tend to hoard it instead of invest it into the kingdom. So Jesus expounds on the latter when he's with his disciples. Um, we have, like we see that in the second half of the passage. Jesus uses hyperbole um, to illustrate how powerful our hold of stuff is, the stuff that we have, how powerful that is, and the misconceptions about that that control us. In his graciousness, he acknowledges that there is a real cost to following him, which, I don't know if this surprised you, will result in persecutions. He calls that out. He's like, yes, there'll be lots of blessings and rewards, also persecutions, also this. But in response to, to talking about this, I don't miss it. Jesus presents three promises to encourage the believers. If you missed them, go back, take another look. God promises eternal life to those that follow him. He also promises that he sees and cares about and gives gifts for our encouragement and our enjoyment in this life to those who sacrifice things for him in the gospel. And then he also promises that there will be more gifts to come in the future kingdom of heaven. I have no idea where I am time, but I want to take a little bit of a side here because I feel like I, I was going to pass it, but I can't. This, if this part was confusing, verse 30, where it talks about, you're going to receive a hundredfold here in this life. I expected him to say a hundredfold in heaven. He says a hundredfold in this life. I feel like I want to argue that a little bit, right? Like it's like houses, moms, brothers, sisters, all this stuff. Honestly, I feel like I want to argue that until I thought about it a little bit deeper and I thought about the church, right? Homes, homes that we gather in, homes that we go to, that we share meals, that we sit and cry with each other in, that we celebrate things in, that we have campfires at, right? Homes, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, mentors, we do get these things a hundredfold back within the church. God does give us these gifts here in this present age. They just maybe don't look like what I expected them to look like. It's the church. If you feel like you can be a Christian loner, this is where the blessings are in the church. There's heartache there. There's also persecutions. He mentions is both. All right, out of his love for this man, Jesus extends an invitation. Come follow me. He gives the man an invitation to be with him, to learn what is true, to come alongside him, not come alongside his list of rules. He wants to be with him, to be by him, to be rescued. 
instead of being Sisyphus, you guys know Sisyphus? Continually crushed by the weight of perpetually pushing the boulder up the mountain just to have it keep falling back down. Spending all of our lives on meaningless tasks of being good. We cannot do life for Jesus without doing life with him. How tenderly Jesus would have responded. I feel like how quick he would have rescued him if the man had admitted his weakness and his failures and turned to Jesus instead of himself. With a false sense of security, the young man is oblivious to how his sin is separating him from God and how much he has truly fallen short of the law. Instead of repentance or even engaging with Jesus more, maybe asking him some questions or trying to understand or to learn or be like, wait, why, do you, why are you telling me that? You know, he, does, he just goes away sad. Now, his worldview got totally rocked by Jesus here. So being, this, being sad part, I totally get. That makes sense to me. It's the going away part that was tragic. When we are confronted by different thoughts of Jesus, when what we believe or how we live is challenged by him, do we turn to him in our confusion or even in our grief and talk about it more, listen, engage with it, or do we just walk away sad, looking for something else to validate the way that we think versus being open to change? We cannot do life for Jesus without life with Jesus. God's plan for faith, for eternal salvation and true life in his loving and powerful grace, that's the plan, not anything that we can do. Look at, um, I don't know how many of you guys had time to do this or look at it, but even if you look at the context of this passage, so it's in, it's in chapter 10, okay, the rich in the kingdom of God or rich young Euler or whatever. But like, if you look at even just in chapter 10, if you go up before that, chapter 10 starts with a teaching on divorce. It's talking about God's designed relationship, relationship that is for our good and for his glory. And then there's this section on children and little children and children being welcomed in the kingdom, right? This idea in this passage about there's value to everybody, regardless of what they can do. Children can't do much. I will testify. Testify. They can't do much. Cry. Whine. Be cute. They can't do much. They have value. They're given value. Then comes the passage we've been talking about, about how there's nothing that we can do to inherit eternal life that has to come from Jesus. And then directly following it, Jesus predicts his death for a third time. Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to die on the cross and he promises to resurrect. This is the plan for faith, even in just chapter 10 of Mark, that God is deeply relational. He values all of life. And because we cannot save ourselves from being good, he comes to rescue us all from the dead, which just means eternal separation from God and raise us up to a new and a better life that is made right by him. Mark, the author here, um, orders this, this text to show that Jesus is wrapping his better plan for us around our inadequate and life-stealing plan for ourselves. 
the invitation that Jesus extends to this young man to come with him, to be by him, to follow him, he has extended it to so many people that he interacts with. You just read it. Read about his life. Come follow me. Come follow me. Come follow me. Come follow me. That invitation that Jesus extends to the young man to be with him, well, these words probably trigger something in the disciples themselves as they listen, because they have memories of when Jesus said these same words to them. Come follow me. It's an invitation that he still extends to us today. Come follow me. Now that sounds so good and so sweet, and I would be remiss if I didn't point out that there is a choice. There was a choice for the disciples, for the man, for you too in that invitation. How tenderly Jesus would have responded, how quick to rescue him if the man had chosen to accept the invitation. We all have to decide what we're doing with it. We all have to RSVP, so to speak. And the scary thing is it's a no until it's a yes. The young man chose, at least in this moment, I hope that he changed his mind later, to RSVP no. It seems like he went to look for another worldview that fit what he wanted, that affirmed him rather than challenged him. I don't want to be that man. I pray that for you guys too. So what will you choose? Because you've got to choose. Jesus as a savior, the only way to relationship with God, to trust God more than the things or the positions that we look to to provide us security.